The last glacial maximum ended its grip on Europe 18,000 years ago, and just a thousand years earlier, a new culture developed on the Iberian Peninsula. Though these peoples lived along the same refugia that the Salutrians did following the spread of the ice sheets, DNA studies have shown that these people, the Magdalenians, are descended from late surviving Uruk nations that managed to hang on while their kin transitioned into Gravettian life. And so, 19,000 years ago, they spread northward and repeopled much of northern Europe as the Salutrian culture slowly died out by 17,000 years ago. The name Magdalenian derives from La Madeleine, a site in France that preserves an entire rock shelter from this period. Their toolkit is characterized by small stone blades, as well as by an increased use of worked organic materials like bones and antlers. The design of the Atalotl, for example, was built upon by the Magdalenians. One of these, found in Bruningkel, France, had carved impressions of reindeer all along it. Incidentally, reindeer appear to have been the most common animals hunted, though they certainly made use of other large mammals like red deer, bison, and wild goat. River resources proved to have as much value to them as they did to the Gravettians, and there was good evidence of intricately carved harpoons for spearing fish. With the Magdalenians comes a return to long-distance sourcing for stones, as well as a possible network of trade between groups across Europe. Some types of stones used have been tied to outcrops over 430 miles away, though the average distance is more like 100 miles or so. In contrast to all that had come before, a system of sedentary, or semi-permanent living became prominent among the Magdalenians, with evidence of groups of neighboring communities coming together for many months out of the year when an abundance of resources or a particularly warm spell was present. That groups often stayed so close together seems to indicate that social organization among these humans had reached more complex levels than ever before. In fact, the original site of Madeline has produced remains of an impressive rock shelter that spanned almost 600 feet in length, which certainly housed entire families within its walls. Some of these rock shelters were located near great cave sites, and many of these have produced more remarkable artwork. Two caves stand out among archaeologists. The first is Lascaux in France, home of the famous Hall of the Bulls, which is a room entirely covered in depictions of wild cattle. Many of the walls of Lascaux showcase some very fascinating images. One of the bulls has a series of dots painted right above it, and another sequence of images shows, in order of left to right, a woolly rhinoceros, a man with a bird-like face, and a bison that appears to have been gored by a spear, its intestines hanging out underneath it. While at first these appear to be simple images of the life and times of the Magdalenians, some researchers have hypothesized that these particular paintings depict constellations, making them star maps of the sort. So the instance of the dots above the bull is a representation of Taurus, with the Pleiades star cluster. And the rhino, birdman, and bison shows a sequence of Leo, Gemini, and Taurus yet again. While some discussion of this hypothesis has been giddily grasped by fringe individuals with more of an ancient alien's bias, it nonetheless could represent an understanding of the cosmos that would be very well in line with what we know about forager groups. A good knowledge of the stars and their seasonality can provide a tool for knowing when certain times are upon you, and whether you'll be able to hunt certain species. But of course this isn't something we can confirm or deny with certainty. The other famous cave site is Altamira in Spain where the walls are littered with bison depictions painted bright red. There are abstract images here too, as well as more handprints by lost peoples. It should be stated that anyone wishing to visit any of the cave sites that I've described here will have a difficult time doing so. Years of tourist activity have affected the walls of the caves, and mold had begun to grow and damage these paintings, tens of thousands of years old. To better preserve these sites for future generations and future research, they have all been closed off to the public. Instead, there are full-scale replicas of these caves that you can go to, 
without the worry of causing further harm to these treasures. While Europe experienced quite an array of fantastic cultures throughout the Ice Ages, their Siberian neighbors also developed equally fascinating societies. As stated previously, ancestors have been living in this region for some 50 to 32,000 years. Except in eastern Siberia, humans did not have to endure the bitter cold pushback from northern Europe, so they more or less rode out the last glacial maximum as best they could on the steppes. However, they did not necessarily have it any easier. They, for example, often lacked access to extensive cave systems to take refuge in. The people here had to create their own shelters out of whatever resources they could find, and crafted exquisite tailored clothing that was densely layered. One of the best examples of this ingenuity was by the Gravettians, the same culture that peopled Europe from the east 33,000 years ago. Not everyone moved into Europe, and thus we have a long-standing cultural complex here called the Eastern Gravettian, which lasted until roughly 25,000 years ago. Like their European cousins, the Eastern Gravettians made use of woolly mammoth as a resource for building their campsites. At Mesthyrik, in the Ukraine, are the remains of at least five houses, 13 to 22 feet across, 850 square feet in area. Each house had a wall of mammoth bones stacked together, with tusks, limbs, and ribs supporting a drape of skin and fur over the entire structure. Hearths and storage pits were dug inside, so these homes would have been warm and ideal for a family of five, as suggested by the remains. Curiously, seashells and amber have been found in these houses, telling us that trade seems to have been present even here, as there was no oceans nearby and no trees growing anywhere. On a related note, groups that lived further south, where there were forests to be found, used wood as well as bone to construct their shelters, as evidenced at the site of Doni Vistoniste in the Czech Republic. Siberian toolkits were very standard across the Ice Ages, blade and flake stone tools coupled with organic bone needles for making clothes. We tend to find settlements near major rivers, like the Don and Dnieper rivers in the extreme west of Russia, and the Tunguska and Yenisei rivers in the central regions. Despite the open air of many of these campsites, there were highland places along the rivers where any would-be hunters could get a good look at their megafaunal prey before striking. These included woolly rhinoceros, wild horses, steppe bison, and reindeer, as well as woolly mammoth, basically an extension of Europe's large mammal communities. Toward Central Asia, which has been blessed with a few select caves, there were people here to inhabit them. The Shugno culture, present from 20 to 15,000 years ago, have been found in present-day Samarkand in Uzbekistan, and are a relatively poorly known society. As far as we know, they hunted megafauna like their neighbors, specifically horses, sheep, goats, and cattle, and pollen studies suggest that they had access to juniper, ash, plain, and hazelnut trees during the warmer months, but that's the most we have right now. More familiar are the cultures of the ancestral North Eurasians, that demographic of people who settled central Siberia and contributed their genes to both the European and Amerindian peoples. Between 26,000 and 12,000 years ago, a number of cultures developed across the region, and these have become particularly well known thanks to both archaeological findings and genetic sequencing. The Malta Buret culture, located in southeast Russia, inhabited large camps during the winter months, with partially dug homes made of reindeer bone and skin. They only made flaked stone tools, which makes them an outlier in the Siberian Ice Ages, as scrapers and other stone implements are usually included in toolkits like these. A lot of tools were made from organic materials, including bone and antler spears, which were tipped with stone points. This makes sense, as this region was not forested during the Ice Ages, and thus lacked the wood necessary to make spears. The Maltabure people made use of bone for more than just weapons, as we find carved and polished ivory spikes that have been interpreted as hairpins by some, and beads made from bird bones that were strung up on pendants and necklaces. They also left behind some remarkable bone sculptures and figurines, often depicting people as well as birds in flight and at rest. 
There are also engravings of mammoths and other animals on pieces of tusk. The human figurines are of immense interest because they tend to be quite detailed in parts, revealing that some multiburate individuals sported thick and wavy hair. There are figurines here that resemble the Venus statues found in Europe, which begs the question whether these people had any significant contact with the European communities like the contemporary Gribetines. Related to these people were the Afantova Gora culture, which lived across the Yenisei River Valley. These Siberian peoples had a more typical stone toolkit, with blades and scrapers that they used to hunt large game. They and the Maltabiri culture have preserved their DNA for geneticists to examine, and we have been able to reconstruct their overall appearance thanks to that. Ancestral North Eurasians seem to have been very similar in appearance to East Asian peoples, with some individuals having dark skin and brown eyes, but there was no doubt variation in traits among them. In particular, while some people had darkened hair, some of the Afantagora individuals carried a gene that had been allied to the presence of blonde hair in Europeans, and it is very likely that this trait originated among these peoples before it was transferred over into Europe over the following thousands of years. It's one thing to be able to reconstruct an entire lost culture, but another thing entirely to put a face to it, too. This underscores the importance of archaeology and ancient genetics and working together to bring the past to life. At the doorstep of Beringia, there were a number of cultures that experienced the worst that the last glacial maximum had to offer. Geologic evidence suggests that, like Europe, eastern Siberia saw a population shift, where communities fled to the south as the glaciers extended downward. One of these was the Yana culture, who made a living hunting woolly rhinoceros and using their horns as tools. They lived in this region until 25,000 years ago, when it was abandoned. We know that some groups were trapped in Beringia around 28,000 years ago, prior to the expansion of the glaciers, and this event no doubt caused further strain on the populations living here, but as it ended, the region saw a repeopling. The Duktai culture represents a community that thrived following the last glacial maximum. Dating to 16,800 years ago, these people are very important to archaeologists as they reveal some of the details of the very beginnings of the peopling of the Americas. Among the choppers and flaked stone tools are microblades, those tiny stone blades that have arisen multiple times among ancestors across the world. This tradition in particular originated in Siberia during the last glacial maximum as an adaptation to preventing carrying heavy loads on hunts. These microblades were efficient tools, able to be crafted onto spears that could still do some damage. Indeed, we find them among the remains of bison and horses from eastern Siberia and into Beringia. The Beringians themselves have become very well known in recent years, thanks to a number of new sites as well as the acquisition of DNA from remains. They reveal a remarkable cultural continuity from Siberia to North America, providing further evidence for a peopling of the Americas through Beringia. Derived from the Duktai toolkit, or something related to it, was the Chindadin toolkit, composed of distinct bifaced blades. These tools and others like them have been recovered in sites to the east of Beringia, present-day Alaska, pointing to a definitive human presence here at least 14,400 years ago. Where the archaeological record fails at the moment is in the transition from tools like these to the familiar Clovis toolkit, the first of the major North American cultural traditions. That's where DNA comes in to fill the gaps. Those recovered from the few remains of people in Beringia point to a definitive link between the people here and those in North America who crafted the Clovis tools. While the specifics are unclear, it clearly shows that once people began to enter the continent, they had to change their stone tools to suit their needs in a new environment. No different than the change between floppy disks and USB drives. They don't look similar, but nonetheless represent a transition in technology. The first Clovis points were originally excavated in 1933, found near the kill sites of the Mammoths. When dated, they were revealed to be significantly older than any other Amerindian stone tools known in the archaeological record. 
it was proposed that these specific peoples were the first Americans, and, following later finds that point to a Clovis presence from west to east, that they rapidly spread across North America and into Central and South America, later giving rise to all later Native American peoples. That view is no longer held today, for we find earlier traces of Amerindians here, but the Clovis culture is still an important and widespread tradition that provides a window into the North American Ice Ages. If Ice Age Europe sounded like a wild place, full of mammoths and rhinos and bison, then Ice Age North America was even stranger. Once people entered the region between 20 and 15,000 years ago, they met a bewildering diversity of megafauna. There were woolly mammoths here too, but only in the northern reaches. Traveling further south, they came across Colombian mammoths. These were much larger, standing 13 feet tall at the shoulders, lacking the thick coats of their relatives, but sporting equally beautiful curved tusks. Alongside these were mastodons, which belonged to a much older lineage than the true elephants, and they lived in the forested regions where they browsed on trees and scrubs. Like Europe, there were wild horses, but of a more diverse assemblage, including horses with stilt legs like an antelope and zebra-like forms. There was a rich array of camels, tapirs, peccaries, and several species of pronghorns, of which only one species survives today in the American Southwest. Bison abounded, some sporting elongated horns akin to a longhorn bull, but the familiar bison of today had not evolved yet. Of the xenarthrans were the ground sloths, some species reaching 20 feet in length, and the glyptodonts, those massive dome-shelled armadillos that reached the size of dune buggies. There was even a giant beaver, Castoroides, that seems to have been very different in habit from the beavers of today. Carnivorous mammals certainly posed challenges. There were the dire wolves who, despite their presence in popular culture, were only slightly larger than living wolves, not all that special and the equally famous saber-toothed cat, Smilodon. Other cats lived here too, jaguars and pumas, as well as American varieties of cheetahs and lions that, incidentally, were only distantly related to the familiar African species. Perhaps terrifying of all was the short-faced bear, Arctotus, that had a standing height of 12 feet. All of these mammals were accompanied by a few big sauropsid faces, like giant tortoises and the pteratorns, large birds of prey akin to condors. North America stood out from northern Eurasia in that its landscapes were remarkably varied during the Ice Ages. There were treeless grasslands and steppes near the glaciers, of course, but immediately further south the environment was temperate, with deciduous forests in the east, akin to what you might find in New England, and dry desert and scrubland towards the west. So any traveling Amerindians moving southward would find themselves in completely different ecosystems from what they had been used to. Those first years on the North American continent would have been trying times for sure, as bands and communities had to unlearn, then learn, and unlearn again all that they knew about what plants and animals to rely on. Therefore, the earliest American cultures, like the Clovis, were unspecialized and dedicated to the hosts of megafauna available to them. The first Americans were big game hunters. The Clovis culture appears in the archaeological record 13,400 years ago, and it lasts until 12,600 years ago. Stone tools were portable, like those of their Beringian ancestors, and were fluted to allow hunters to slip wooden spears onto them. While these tools would have been primarily weapons, there appears to have been at least some social function to them as well. The site of Anzic in Montana showcases the burial of an infant who was laid surrounding by freshly made stone points. That these tools were made without the purpose of hunting in mind gives some clues that they may have had some ritual significance, or perhaps represent status symbols. Unlike Europe and Siberia, we don't find a lot of aesthetic artifacts at Clovis sites, just a few incised stones and engraved bones, but given that many Amerindian works of aesthetic appreciation in historical times were constructed out of organic materials, 
This might just represent sampling bias. For all we know, the Clovis might have been as artistic as the Gravettians. Curiously, Megafon do not seem to make up a significant part of the menu for Clovis people. We find evidence of mammoth, bison, horse, and caribou hunts, but most of our animals appear to have been smaller in stature, like rabbits and voles, turtles and game birds. We have evidence that they fished, too. In essence, it all depended on where the people lived. Archaeological surveys point to a greater reliance on megafauna on the Great Plains and in the southwestern deserts, while people living in the eastern forests had a broader diet of smaller game. A truly notable kill site was discovered in Sonora, Mexico, where two gauntletheers, shovel-tusked relatives of elephants, were brought down by Clovis hunters around 13,300 years ago. And there are similar sites in Arizona where mammoths were killed. We can tell that the hunters threw spears at these massive animals that became embedded in their thick hides, and that once they were brought down, the meat was butchered on site and likely carried off to a camping ground. Faced with extreme polar temperatures, unfamiliar landscapes, and terrifying mammals, our ancestors managed to pull through and survive through it all. It's truly remarkable to think about such a devastating and harsh time, and people lived through it. They not only survived, but they lived producing artwork of immense beauty that stupefies art historians, anthropologists, and non-specialists alike. They were able to take down immense creatures using only stone tools hafted onto spears, using teamwork and skills that had to have been shaped over decades. And once the last glacial period ended, and the world entered the Holocene Epoch, those same people went on to do extraordinary things. If our ancestors can make it through the Ice Ages, there's nothing we can't overcome today. And with that, we must lay anchor to our river journey. In the next episode, we return to the African continent and explore the peoples and cultures of the late Stone Age. While their neighbors in Europe were struggling through the glacial periods, African peoples continued to innovate and develop remarkable artwork and technology, like the Saharan rock art and the Ishango bone. And we follow in the footsteps of the earliest African horticulturalists as they plant the seeds of a new era, introducing pottery, domestic animals, and farming to the mother continent. That's the end of this episode of On the River of History. If you enjoyed listening in or are interested in hearing more, you can visit my new website at www.podcasts.com. Just search for On the River of History. This podcast is also available on iTunes. Just search for it by name. A transcript of today's episode is available for the hearing impaired or for those who just want to read along. The link is in the description. And if you like what I do, you're welcome to stop by my Twitter, at Cheer. Thank you all for listening. And never forget, the story of the world is your story too.